0: We hear the reading of the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10 to 62, verse 5 prophet writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day, Lord. We thank you, Father, for this season of Christmastide. Lord, a season of 12 days where we can simply give praise For the incarnation of Christ. And so Lord we pray God and give you thanks for our worship this morning. We thank you Father for our time of singing Lord. Of confession of sin. Lord of your liturgy that you've given us. Lord we pray God that you would bless our worship. The rest of our time this morning Lord. That you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears. To believe and to hear and to understand. Lord we pray God that you would pour out your spirit among us. As we continue to worship you Lord. Through hearing your word read and proclaimed. Through Eucharist and through more singing. Lord, we pray, God, that you would allow us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this text might, at least it should, a couple of verses, might seem a little familiar to some of you this morning. Because our first couple of verses, the first two-ish sentences, which are pretty long sentences in the text, are actually from the same text that we considered two weeks ago on the third Sunday of Advent, while we contemplated the joy of our Advent waiting. So then, now that Advent is over, and Christ has come in the flesh, and even though we are still waiting for his return, what this helps us do is see that our joyous celebration can now shift to contemplate the implications of the Incarnation and not just preparing to celebrate it. We can now celebrate it. So what we have here in Isaiah 61.10 uh, through 62.5 62, is a hymn of praise from Isaiah. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And this hymn of praise enriches our Christmastide celebration by helping us to really see the big picture of what God has done in the Incarnation of Christ. This hymn helps us to see what it means for us as God's people that the eternal Son has taken on flesh and has pitched his tent among us. So we'll discuss really the intricate details of what God has done in the Incarnation through the seasons of Epiphany and Lent and even Eastertide. But for the 12 glorious feast days of Christmas, we can simply celebrate. And we can celebrate in the joy of salvation that God has accomplished through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we begin here, we start in this hymn of Isaiah. We again come to these first two verses that we have already considered through Advent. And as it pertained to that Advent waiting, we discussed how this hymn of Isaiah is the song of the redeemed. In this hymn, we have the totality of our salvation being proclaimed. Furthermore, this salvation we read in verse 11 here, that it will sprout up in front of the nations, before the nations, in the face of the nations. Meaning that Yahweh's accomplished salvation through his anointed one will not only be apparent to the nations, but acknowledged, even if they don't believe it. But there's obviously more going on here in these two verses than what we were able to discuss during the season of Advent. And primarily because now that Christmas is here, that means our thematic focus has changed again. We are no longer waiting to celebrate the Incarnation, but we can now celebrate the Incarnation. So, from a general read-through, as we just read, you may have noticed, and if you didn't, I'm going to help you see that it's there, that Isaiah uses very overt wedding language throughout this hymn. Here in verse uh, 10 of 61, all the way through 62.5, the speaking person changes to Isaiah himself. 61, 1 to 9 is the Lord God. 62, 6 and following goes back to the Lord God. Here, this is Isaiah singing a hymn of praise. Most commentators would argue that the speaker is unidentified, but it's fairly obvious if you're actually paying attention to what's being read. Right? This is Isaiah giving a hymn of praise. I made this comment two weeks ago. Isaiah's hymn is the hymn of the church. We can sing this hymn. And so you can notice, again, he uses some very overt wedding language. And he draws upon the metaphor of marriage to describe the relationship between the anointed one of God and the people of God. Now, this is not an uncommon theme, an uncommon metaphor for anyone who has spent any kind of time reading any of the Bible. Uh, The entire book of Hosea is, while historically Hosea and Gomer existed, it is a giant metaphor for the mystery of marriage between God and his people. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul picks up on this. He even says this, that the marriage of a husband and wife is a mystery. It's like a sacrament. It is referring to Christ and his church. So then, looking here just in verses 10 and 11, notice exactly what this marriage hymn is proclaiming to us as the people of God. Because salvation has now arrived in the incarnation of Christ we can along with Isaiah here in verse 10 emphatically declare our praise to the Lord he says i will greatly rejoice in the lord this is not a silent singing this is a loud exuberant praising i will greatly rejoice but we can also emphatically with Isaiah exalt or glory in the work of my god this term my god is really interesting in the hebrew Because this is a term not only of love or joy, which this season celebrates, but this is also a term of possession. Yahweh is not a disconnected deity confined to a carving on the mantle. This is a lot of what Isaiah gets at, what the Lord gets at through Isaiah. But rather, Yahweh is my God, Isaiah is saying. Yahweh is your God. He belongs to you as much as you belong to him. And we can know this in this verse, particularly because of what God has done for us. Isaiah tells us here, Yahweh is the God who has clothed us. He has adorned us in the wedding garments of righteousness and salvation, of jewelry. Yahweh is the God who has prepared both us as his bride and his anointed one as our groom for our wedding day. John picks up on this in Revelation, and he see, and he says this, Let us rejoice and exult. Let us give God glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to do what? To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So understanding this clothing imagery is really important, it's key to properly grasping the biblical idea of God's people being a bride for the son. In the Hebrew, this phrase here in Isaiah 61 about he has clothed me, literally can be translated as, God has caused me to be clothed. Suggesting that this is something that has been done to us. Simply put, God has done all of the work for us. He has prepared his anointed one, Christ, to bring the gift of salvation to us. And all we have to do then is to rightly perceive it, and then accept it by faith, and allow God to clothe us in Christ himself. Garments are a recurring theme throughout scripture that signifies our life in God. So drawing from Galatians chapter 3 verse 27, the the early church understood that our baptisms are that moment in which we put on Christ as the garment of salvation and righteousness. In fact, many of the early church communities would baptize people if they weren't completely in their birthday suits, they were almost in, and they would come out of the baptismal waters and be given new robes to wear to signify and to symbolize the righteousness of Christ. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3, he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Then Theodoret of Seir, or Sire, could be Cyrus, writing in the mid-fifth century, proclaims this. He says, in the Hebrew language, this garment of salvation is called the garment of Jeshua. That is the garment of Jesus. So here, says Theodoret, he says, here in Isaiah, the church cries to God, my soul rejoices. And he calls the grace of baptism, the garment of salvation, and the cloak of joy. So Theodoret says, the church calls herself the bride of Christ because we have been yoked to Christ and because we have put on Christ. Cyril of Alexandria, writing around the same time period, declares that our life in Christ is the garment of our rejoicing. And he states this, he says, the garment of rejoicing means our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, they who have Christ as a garment, gain not only salvation, but also joy in Christ. He says, Christ, therefore, is the garment that is from heaven, which if anyone takes, he or she will be crowned with all glory. So then, like a bride being adorned for her wedding, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, God gives us Christ as a wedding gown to put on to bind up our broken hearts, like he says in verse 1 of chapter 61, to proclaim liberty to us and to comfort us in our mourning. God gives us Christ as our robe of righteousness so that now we can greatly rejoice and our souls can exult in the glory of our God. And then like any marriage, the relationship between man and woman is redefined. In under the new marital status right the joy and excitement of newlyweds is able to pervade this text again we have excited newlyweds in the room right so we can at least appreciate this because we've had a visual reminder a couple of weeks ago so this relationship is redefined right you are no longer engaged you are no longer waiting you are no longer two but you're now one This is just as mystically and cosmically true of husband and wife as it is with Christ and his church. Again, Paul tells the Galatians, he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So similar to a new husband and wife, because we have now been clothed in the marital gown of salvation and righteousness in Christ, we have a redefined relationship with the Lord God. Throughout the remainder of this hymn, of all of 62, 1-5, to 5, Isaiah describes what this new relationship looks like. But he also describes how our relationship with God is redefined and how it is actually recognized by the nations. And so he says this just in verse 1. He says, For Zion's sake I will not keep quiet, or silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not be silent until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So Isaiah begins here. He mentions both Zion and Jerusalem. Which throughout a lot of the Old Testament scripture are used synonymously to refer to Jerusalem or Zion itself. right? They just kind of are interchangeable. But separately they do refer to both the city of Jerusalem and Zion as the temple mount. Right? And I don't think this is arbitrary. <laughs> I don't think this is something that we should easily gloss over. Because I think by mentioning both, what God is doing here is he's illustrating for us that the total redemption of his people is all-encompassing. And he is now redefining not only our relationship with him, but our worship of him in a more holistic way. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. And he proclaims this in chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. He says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, meaning his body, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves or by means of the old covenant, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, the new covenant. Then he says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... Then, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, what Isaiah is doing here is he's drawing our attention back to the promises of the Lord God from verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 61. Let me read those for you again. Because again, this hymn is built all out of these promises of Isaiah 61. So, Isaiah 61 begins and it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, and to give them glory instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness in the planting of the Lord, so that he may be glorified. Again, Jesus reads this himself in Nazareth on the day he is rejected and claims that it has been fulfilled in him in that moment. And so then, because of this redefined relationship with the Lord, Isaiah reminds us here in 62.1 that we cannot and we should not keep silent or quiet about the arrival of God's salvation in the incarnation of Christ. The salvation that we have been waiting on through Advent and we now proclaim at Christmas. Again, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be silent or quiet. I'm getting those confused, sorry. But, interestingly though, both Simeon and Anna understood this. In a text typically reserved for epiphany, our lectionary today actually includes Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40, as one of the other readings for today, which is where Simeon and Anna proclaim this. Starting in verse 25, we see now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to Gentiles and for for glory for your people Israel. And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four, And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon and Anna knew exactly what was going on the moment they saw Christ the child. And they could not keep silent about it. Because God was now redefining their relationship with him. And he was redefining their worship with him in a better and more holistic way. And so notice, going back to Isaiah 62, he says in verse 1 here that it is our righteousness and our salvation that will go out brightly and like a burning torch. In scripture, fire is always seen as a sign of the presence of God. There's a torch and a fire pot in Genesis 15:17 when God makes his covenant with Abram. The burning bush of Exodus 3 verse 2, when God appears to Moses and commissions him to go back to Egypt. The pillars of cloud and fire in Exodus 13 that lead the people of Israel. The glory of the Lord upon the tabernacle in Exodus 40. Or even the fire of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Hebrew, this word brightness here in one means or is better translated as something like a bright light. So bright lights and burning torches are hard to miss. I'm sure most of you, if your cars don't already have them, Sharon and I utterly hate those white, bright halogen headlights. They are horrible on the eyes, especially anybody in the room that wears glasses or corrective lenses. It's the worst. <laughs> bright lights are hard to miss. And when people don't turn their brights off in the middle of the night while you're driving, it's even harder to miss because you will miss the road. Right? But <laughs> bright lights are hard to miss. Torches are hard to miss. Their influence over darkness does not go unnoticed. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, verse 12, that he is the light of the world. And then in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that we are the light of the world. And the point is this, God's purpose in this newly defined marital relationship between himself and his covenant people is for us to shine forth with righteousness and glory that not only reflects him and his work for us, but also draws attention to him so that others might believe. Jesus tells us in that same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This shining forth principle is illustrated in verse 2. Isaiah says this, he says, so again, until your righteousness goes forth as brightness, your salvation is a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So regardless of how the nations might respond, the nations will notice that a transformation has taken place. Because they will be able to easily observe that the glory, salvation, and righteousness of God rests on his covenant people. Furthermore, he says here that this glory, salvation, and righteousness will be identified with a change in name. This is not a name that the nations or their kings will invent for God's people, although they have invented a few. Nor will this be a name that we even give to ourselves. This is a name that God gives to us. And this is not a secret name like in Revelation chapter 2. That's a secret name that each one of us has that God gives to us. But here, this is a name that is known by everyone. The giving of a new name is usually associated with a new identity or a change in the relationship with God. Just like it was with Abraham. Or with Jacob. Or we see with Simon Peter. Very early on... The faithful, and we read this in the book of Acts, the faithful were known as the followers of the way, because Christ is the way. But soon afterwards, they were known by another name. We also read this in the book of Acts. They take upon the name of the one by whom they were called. They go by the name Christian. One church father proclaims this. He says, our new name is Christian. The baptized person is called by a new name because he or she has received a total change of condition. You have received a new name because you now have a new identity in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, by giving us a new name, what God is doing is drawing attention to this redefined relationship with Him. And it's very much intentionally connected to the marriage imagery that's used throughout this hymn. Again, man becomes husband, woman becomes wife, Christ is our groom. The church is, is the bride of Christ. And together we are married. No longer two, but one. And then he says this You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So now that we are married, this again further describes our transformed covenant with God. And again, it draws upon the wedding garments and the imagery used in the hymn. Not only will God's people be called by his name that he gives, but we will also be known as precious, like expensive jewelry that's securely held in his hands. This imagery here of being held in the hand of God and not worn on the head like a crown, because a royal crown and a diadem, these, these are crowns. But being held in the hand, this signifies that we are deeply loved, but it also signifies that We hold his attention. His gaze is upon us. We are secure in his grasp. And then finally, in these last two verses, what Isaiah does in this hymn is he really kind of gets into a little bit more detail of what this renaming looks like and how it redefines our marriage relationship with the Lord. He says this in verse 4. So again, you shall be called by a new name, and no longer shall your name be forsaken, nor your land be turned desolate, But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land, married. For Yahweh delights in you, and your land shall be married. Now for Isaiah's original audience, especially with exile looming on the horizon, it would have been natural and obvious to every single nation around them that when they were defeated in battle, and when they were carried off as slaves, the other nations would have easily recognized Their God had abandoned them. They're gone. Their God is done with them. In the ancient mindset, Yahweh was finished with Israel. So much so that they now called Israel forsaken. And their land was left a total ruin from the siege and the battles. And their land was called desolate. Now we know that this is not how it works. right? God had not forsaken them. Because we're able to understand the promises that are woven through here. But this is how the world perceives it to be. When bad things happen to the church, when bad things happen to the people of God, well, your God's not real and he doesn't care about you. Right? We talked about this some in Sunday school this morning. But that's not how it is. And now Isaiah tells us here, this is not how it will be. These old names are rejected and new names are introduced in order to show the dramatic contrast of our redefined marital relationship with God. Notice, again, both of these names reflect the reality of what we just saw in verses 2 and 3. Again, the nations will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And you will no more be termed forsaken and your land will no more be termed desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her and your land married for God delights in you. These new names accurately describe our position before God that we have in Christ Jesus. God's people are termed and referred as my delight is in her instead of forsaken. This is a clear affirmation of the pleasure that God has with the people he loves. This also illustrates how we are a crown of glory and a royal diadem in his hand because it shows that we are precious to him and his gaze is upon us. And then second, the land... Where his people dwell in him are now referred to as married instead of desolate. This is intentional covenant language because it signifies, again, this new and completely redefined relationship, but it also illustrates how we have been clothed in the garments of salvation and righteousness. It shows that we belong to Christ and are now fully identified in Christ. We dwell before God. In Christ Jesus. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have a new identity because the old has passed away and the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Again, Theodoret of Syria writes this. He says, those who believe in the Lord received a new title. And they are not called after Abraham. And they're not called after Israel. And they're not called after Judah. But they are named after their master Christ. And they are called Christians by everyone because they have put on Christ. And so then, keeping that wedding imagery going, as he closes out this hymn, Isaiah issues what I would term a proclamation of peace. And so he says, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The joy and excitement, again, of newlyweds is, re, is, the, is in this redefined relationship. Even God himself, Isaiah tells us, will rejoice, and he will rejoice in the accomplished plan that he set out before the foundation of the world. This means that there will be a permanent, mutual love and covenant relationship between God and his people. And this is a relationship that proclaims to the people of God that we now have a complete peace and rest in Christ. A peace that cannot be forsaken or taken away. Now here's the point, and then we'll come to the table. We have a lot to give God praise for this Christmas as we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Because Christ has taken on flesh, and because He has taken on our likeness, And because he has taken on our iniquities and our troubles and our sorrows, like we read in Isaiah 53 this morning, and because Christ has made his dwelling among us and died for us and was raised for us and makes intercession for us, as we read in Isaiah 53 this morning, we have the privilege of obtaining a completely new identity and relationship with and in the God of the universe. We have the blessing of becoming the bride of the eternal son clothed in the wedding gown of salvation and His righteousness. He makes us a precious possession and He gives us a glorious new name and identity and He secures us in peace and holds us in His hand. So, let us make great thanks and give great praise to God on this Christmas Sunday and rest in this eternal truth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. May the peace of Christ always be with you. Amen.